Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Ratner, Director of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital at NYU Langone Health, where we discuss what germs are, how they make us sick, and whether I should be cleaning with bleach wipes the entirety of my in public spaces I come in contact with. I'm very excited, you guys, uh, for this episode. Uh, We have Dr. Adam Ratner. He is the director of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital at NYU Langone Health. Bienvenidos. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks so much for coming. So you're a literal doctor, and you are a doctor of infectious diseases. And this is why you're here, because it started off, I was thinking that the title would be like this. Is it weird that, or do you think that people think that I'm weird when I get on an airplane and and immediately start wiping down my whole station with, like, those disinfecting, like, wet ones wipes? Because that started happening to me, and I was like, I wonder if people are thinking that I'm, you know, a little intense with with that. Um, And then I was like, that title might be too long when I was talking to my friend Emily, who who helps us book the show. And um, so I was like, I think I need, like, an infectious disease doctor to talk about, like, how do germs work? (laughs) Absolutely. So, first of all, you are not the only one wiping down your seat like that. I am. I am sure. And um, yeah, the the short answer about do you need to do that is probably not. Although, if it makes you feel better, it's it is okay to do. Well, because here's the thing. Okay. Obviously, airplanes are not real life all the time. Like they have become much more frequent for me because I'm just I travel more now than I have, did in like my twenties. Um, and I get that, you know, germs probably work differently in like a flying vessel hurling itself through the air at 30,000 feet that has recycled air with everyone hacking up a lung and stuff. But like, so it doesn't help at all is what you're saying? Are you serious? No, I'm not saying it doesn't help at all. I'm, I'm saying especially during flu season, it's probably a reasonable thing to do, but I don't think you need to go crazy about it. Um, if I were, you know, if I were strapping a child into an airplane seat and they were planning on eating their Cheerios off of that tray thing that oh, comes yeah, down, yeah, yeah. I would wipe that thing down. Or even but, the buckle, because if the because so basically you're protecting yourself from pre-existing maybe things that were already on the buckle that someone missed, but you're not going to protect yourself from current germs that are in the plane or something. Right, stuff coming through the air. I don't think. What about masks? Going to help you. And if you don't eat, and so you don't take your little mask off. Okay, people are going to think you're a little intense if you're on there wearing a mask. In gorgeous Asia, a lot of people wear masks every day when this I was in Japan, true. and no one looks at you different. That That is true. It's actually just it. polite. Do you think that as an infectious diseases expert, is, is are masks helping me? Is that going to control something coming through my into my nose and throat if I don't take it off to eat or drink for the duration of the flight. So I don't think you need to do that. Are you thinking a bubble suit is better? Yes, absolutely. No, yes. no, no. For your water and that. I think that I I think that the risk of getting sick on a plane is low, but it is non-zero. I think that the the calculus changes a little bit if you are someone with a weakened immune system. So we have, you know, I'm, I'm a pediatric infectious disease doctor. We take care of kids who have had transplants or, or kids with cancer. And and in those cases, we try to, to very much control the germs that they are exposed to. For a, a healthy adult, normal immune system, I think you can go on a plane without a mask. It's okay. Okay. So, but... Do masks prevent germies from getting in my nose and throat? Sure, some of them. 
Not but, all but of them? Not, but not all of them. Why? So there are, because germs come in different sizes. Mm. And so there are things that ha- get transmitted through large droplets, large respiratory droplets, and things that get transmitted through small droplets. So, for example, we've had this measles outbreak in, in New York recently, and we have to use not the regular masks when we see the, those kids in the hospital. We use these N95 masks, which filter more because – Smaller droplets, things can get through. So inside an N95 mask, um, if it would like the netting or something is much tighter on mm-hmm. the insides of those little papers yes. or on the outside of the paper. Okay, so can we Amazon N95 <laughs> masks? I'm wondering, can we uh, shoot? I mean, okay. So what about like the common cold? Is that less droplety or bigger? Does is that? So a, a lot of things that cause the common cold, and there are a whole bunch of things that cause the common cold, not just one thing, but many of those are, are transmitted either through large droplets or through stuff that you get on your hands. So so a lot of the respiratory viruses are transmitted that way. And that's why, you know, during cold and flu season, probably the most effective thing that you can do to prevent getting sick is to wash your hands, not obsessively, not necessarily with antibacterial soap or anything like that. Regular soap and water is fine. If if you're not in your soap and water, Purell is fine. Are you sure? Because yes. you know how that they said that that Purell was like, you know, not the jam anymore. Like a couple years ago. Remember when they said that there was like that news cycle and they were like, take it out. The FDA or whoever didn't say it, it was cute anymore or whatever. So there are things that Purell is good for and, and things that it's less good for. For if you are somewhere where you don't have access to soap and water, like an airplane seat, when you're on the, the inside seat by the window and you've got the, the big guy sitting on the aisle and you don't want to climb over him and you feel like you need to wash your hands, Purell is fine for that. It will decrease the burden of bacteria and viruses on your hands. Is it perfect? No, not perfect. But, it, but it's better than nothing. Because is it kind of, is there some germs that it's just going to smear around and move around on your hands? Yeah, so there are some things that are super hard to kill. Um, and Purell is not as good for for those. But in terms of being a, a reasonable substitute for washing your hands in a situation like that, it is fine. Would it increase your, okay, if you had like germs and, and stuff and like viruses like in a Petri dish, right? Mm-hmm. And, well, okay, let's say your hands were in the Petri dish, like your whole hand. Like okay? a big Petri dish. Yes, a huge okay. Petri dish. And some people use Purell and then didn't take water and, like, let's see. Because like, also, okay, Jonathan, don't let your ADD get, okay, stand by. I have to write it down. <laughs> okay. Okay, so some of the people used Purell. And then other people use Purell, but then took this glass bottle of water that's right here and dumped that over their hands after they used the Purell to maybe like wash away said viruses and, and bacterias on their hands. Does, would that get rid of it better? Like if you rinsed it off afterwards or, or no? I don't know. I don't think so. I imagine in my mind that if I rinse something off, it's going to be more effective at getting this stuff off me. So probably the best thing that you can do is a good soap and water wash. Doesn't have to be fancy soap, but but the combination of the friction of using soap and then the the rinsing is probably, you know, the the best way of doing it. Sometimes that's not practical. Having an alcohol-based hand sanitizer in that case is fine though. 
So water is good to use when we have it when we're like disinfecting things, but like alcohol-based things are cute too. What are the what are the infectious diseases that stay on surfaces the most? Like what are the hardest to kill? So we in, in the hospital setting, the thing we worry MRSA. about. MRSA. Oh, yes, we can talk about MRSA, but that's not what I was going to say. Oh, my God, what were you going to say? I was going to say Clostridium difficile, C. diff. Ah! Oh, my God! What is it? C. diff is an infection that people get when they've had too many antibiotics. It can cause horrible diarrhea. It can be bad in in old people in particular. I love antibiotics. Everyone loves antibiotics. I fucking, That's how we I, got when I have a cough, honey, throw me, uh, give me a Z pack. No, no, no. Oh my god, give me some. Give me what's that? Oh god, what's the? When I used to like have sex with too many people back in the day, I'd be like, Doc, give me a dang um penicillin. I used to love like a. <laughs> I only ever got one, but like if I was ever really scared, I'd be like, throw a penicillin at it, so I could get C diff exposed. I I could be more exposed to C diff because I loved antibiotics. So there are a whole bunch of reasons not to take inappropriate antibiotics. Antibiotics are fantastic. I love antibiotics. I prescribe them all the time, but. Any drug has a danger, right? And so I should have you, thought about this before I did this episode. I'm freaking out. Okay. I, can, I don't know if I can get through 40 minutes of this. I'm holding on by the skin of my kids' teeth. You weigh risks and benefits anytime you prescribe any drug at all. There are drugs that have side effects, and people can can develop allergies to them. And one of the particular things that happens when you take antibiotics is antibiotics. Their whole job is killing bacteria, right? That's why we take them, and. Your body is not sterile. Your body, my body, everybody's body is coated with microbes and you have microbes all throughout your intestine and they help you. Those are those are the good guys. Those are the guys that help you with digestion and they help educate your immune so system. So antibiotics kill all microbes? They So any particular antibiotic doesn't kill all microbes, but there also are not antibiotics that only go after the infection that you have. They can't tell. So... No matter what antibiotic you take, you're putting your microbiome, that collection of organisms that lives in your gut and on your skin and everywhere else, under some pressure. You're destabilizing that community. Could it make it more alkaline or acidic? In your gut? Yeah. I I guess because, I mean, I I think that pH balance and and all sorts of homeostasis in in your gut and elsewhere, there are contributions of the microbiome to that. Do you believe that whole thing that, like, acidity leads to like a, a whole range of diseases like that's not just like hogs wash right like that's like because i feel like whenever i read those like a- acidity alkalinity things i feel like i can hear my grandma from the grave being like oh that's hogs wash the doctors at duke university would never say that like meditating doesn't really help and i'm like bitch i know that that would help your blood pressure you know so let me address the acidity alkaline thing and then we can talk about meditating okay okay i think the acidity alkaline thing is hogs wash really yeah are you Fucking serious. I am fucking serious. My dude dentist has been telling me that I need to use this alkalinizing mouthwash at night. I don't think so, man. Are you serious? Because your body's pretty good at regulating pH. Unless you're you're super sick for some reason. Really, really. It's Uh, something your body is really uh, good at. You need to get your own podcast. Did you know? Okay. Wow, okay. So keep telling me. So... 
things that you're so there are lots of things that your body takes very seriously and one of them is what pH things like your your blood and other fluids are and there's a lot of energy expended by by your cells and to you know, and by your microbiome and stuff and so stabilizing you don't think doing these. things to alkalinize ourselves is cute like you don't believe that certain foods like might make us more alkaline or more acidic or something I don't buy it man really really I'm sorry oh my god a break are you theory? okay fine we'll be right back with Morgan Curious with gorgeous Dr. Adam Ratner right after the break. So you think it's hogwash? I think that part is hogwash. We can talk about meditation, which I don't think is hogwash. Okay, great. Let's talk about okay. that. <laughs> Not my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but but I think that that relaxation stuff like that, we do a lot of these things with with kids in the hospital. I think that many things that aren't necessarily proven in that way can still be relaxing and can be overall good for people. But the acidity alkaline thing, I think, is no go. <laughs> okay, so mindfulness, you think, is more interest. Okay, so back to the germs thing. Like, good. are viruses or bacteria harder to kill on surfaces and on our skin and stuff? Or is one more contagious than the other? So, totally depends. So, so there are, you know, when we talk about germs overall, you know, we're talking about microbes, so, so things that are too small to see with the naked eye, so viruses, bacteria, fungi. And within each of those, some of them are, are super hardy and some of them are much easier to kill. Um, and there are, you know, there are bacteria that can live in the soil for for decades. So there there are things that form spores. That's one of the things that C. diff, which we were talking about before, oh, yeah. does. It, it forms these like shell like components that are are spores. It's basically it it sort of holds up like a turtle going inside its shell. Oh, so it's and almost it like can, harder to kill. Yeah, and so it can survive in the environment for for years. C. diff can. Decades. C. C. diff can and other other. Similar bacteria. I interrupted you too much earlier when we were talking about that. No, I just realized okay. so the whole C diff thing. Like so, peop, so let's talk about that more. Okay, so this is one of the reasons that we worry about using antibiotics when we don't need them. They're wonderful when we need them. They're less wonderful when we don't. And you, anytime you use them, you put your microbiome under selective pressure, meaning that you're exposing it to antibiotics. Some of the Good bacteria, some of the members of your microbiome are being killed by those bacteria. And sometimes other bacteria, because that community has been destabilized, can flourish. And so repeated courses of antibiotics can put you in a situation where C. diff can can flourish and then it can take over in the gut and it can cause disease. It causes colitis, so inflammation of the colon. And it can cause um, diarrhea and and you know, major problems. It can be very hard to get rid of. Okay, so C. diff is a threat of overuse of antibiotics. Right, so that's one threat. And then the other one is the development of antibiotic resistance. And that's something we worry about too. And you mentioned MRSA earlier. And that's something that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about on the infectious disease service and in the hospital, this is a situation where we have the skin bacterium called Staph aureus, which almost everybody has as as part of the normal bacteria on their skin. Uh, It can cause problems if it gets into the wrong place on your body, meaning if it enters through a cut or something like that, it can cause a, a skin infection. And in rare cases, it can cause disseminated infections. It can go into the blood or into the bones. And so it, it's it's serious business. 
when penicillin first came out in the in the 1940s, almost all staph strains were sensitive to penicillin. And so penicillin was this fantastic drug for staph. But then very rapidly in the in the few years after penicillin was released, there were penicillin-resistant staph strains. And then there was the invention of some semi-synthetic penicillins, meaning things that looked like penicillin that chemists made that uh, that worked better on staph. And those worked great for a few decades. And now there's what's called methicillin-resistant staph aureus, MRSA. And so that is resistant to a lot of the antibiotics that we use. And What about doxy? So doxy is actually pretty good for most MRSA strains, but not all of them. Mm. What about so, um, you know lots of antibiotics? Uh, I was busy in my twenties. Um, <laughs> what about what, what what about okay? Oh my god, infections stress me out. What about um, what about new gorgeous treatments for antibiotics? Is there any new fun antibiotics coming around? There are, but not enough. So, so the deal is that we do have better options now for, for things like MRSA than we had a few years ago. There are a couple of new drugs, and that's great. There are some unrelated um, pathogens that it's much harder to treat. So there are some of the, the gram-negative— Stand by. Anthony, I'm recording my podcast literally right now, and it's really cute that you called, but and we can't edit it out because it's cute, but I can't talk right now because I'm doing my podcast, okay? Hi, okay, Anthony. I watched your video once, and it got canceled, so tell me about it later. Okay, bye. Okay. So, sorry. Turning on airplane mode now. That, that was, was amazing, pretty cute. the way. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah. So there, there are some other organisms, some other classes of organisms that are highly resistant where we're really running out of like antibiotics what? that we can use. Like the clap. Like gonorrhea. Yep. Yeah. There yep. you go. Okay, wait. No, that is no joke. We got, we're going to come back to that because okay. I know that that could actually, I mean, that killed people in, in times in our history, you know, and we don't want to fuck mm-hmm. with it too much. And, you know, especially, so, okay, but backing up. Um, uh, so I know because like, like. You know, if you're in the hospital, like they like we're starting to like want to see people kind of get out of the hospital a little quicker. So we're not exposing them to, you know, to like MRSA and other, you know, resistant things, you know, because hospitals can be a place where, you know, that can happen um, more. But to clear this up with antibiotic resistance, if you are someone who I mean, how does that cause antibiotic resistance? Because I asked my friend asked their doctor this one time because they were scared that they were taking so many antibiotics. And, um, uh, like, the doctor said, like, well, um, it's not like taking by antibiotics that makes you antibiotic resistant. It's if you get exposed to an antibiotic resistant strain. Or are you saying that you can develop an antibiotic resistant strain by taking too many antibiotics? Both things are true. So, wow. So there are, there are a couple of ways that this can happen. So there are, there are some bacteria out there that are just highly resistant, that, that are resistant to most antibiotics, and that is is just the way that they are. And then there's the thing that can happen where if you take antibiotics, certain bacteria can develop resistance while you're taking the antibiotic. And so the other thing about resistance that is super important is that in many instances, the resistance can be transmissible from one kind of bacteria to another. So you can end up with other kinds of bacteria other than the ones that were exposed that developed the resistance in the first place that then get that gene. Wait, say that again. Okay. And slower. Ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. So some bacteria can just be resistant to the antibiotic that you're using because there are no antibiotics that treat all bacteria. Okay. 
Sometimes, if you're taking antibiotics for an infection, even if you clear the infection, you may have made some of the bacteria that are in your gut resistant to that antibiotic because you've put pressure on them. You've exposed them to some amount of the antibiotic. If it didn't kill all of them, you've selected for the ones that are resistant. Sometimes those kinds of resistant organisms can transmit that resistance to yet another kind of bacteria, meaning that bacteria that weren't resistant before can pick up the genes that made the other the other bacteria resistant. So does that mean that someone could like is that how like uh, to bring it back to the STI thing? Is that how like antibiotic resistant like chlamydia's and gonorrheas are made? Because like somewhere else in your body you develop resistance and then it just like goes over to your pee hole or something. So it doesn't. That doesn't have to happen within someone. the 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 deal is that you can if one person gets an antibiotic resistant strain of something, if it develops in that person, that strain is then transmissible to other people, mm-hmm. and. Also, if you have an antibiotic-resistant organism in your gut, let's say you have an E. coli that that has a gene for resistance to some particular antibiotic, it may be able to transmit that, that gene to another organism in the gut. And so now you have two different organisms that are resistant. Like what? Like what other, what other one in your gut? There are lots of different ones. We, things that we worry about now are, are, you know, Klebsiella is one, which is a relative of E. coli, but it's, it is— What does that give you if you get a coli? Hep or something? So so E. coli and Klebsiella are both things that live in your gut and can cause you know invasive infections, bloodstream infections, stuff like, like sepsis? that. Like sepsis? Yes, like sepsis. Wow. Um scare. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Aren't are you scared? Like all the time? <laughs> or no? No, so so someone asked me that during during the measles outbreak recently. They they said are you upset by this or is this the kind of thing you live for? And the answer is both things are true. Like I I don't like anything that makes kids sick. I don't like anything that makes anyone sick. And we, you know, my team that I work with, we we try really hard to protect kids from infection. We encourage kids to get vaccinated to to protect to protect them from infections. We try to use antibiotics as judiciously as we can so that we treat the kids who need to be treated and you know and don't encourage resistance as much as we can. But I also am super interested in these things. And you know that that's kind of what what brought me into this field in the first place. So I you know, yeah, I like these things. So um uh, oh god that one's really scary um okay so those are some of the pathogens that are becoming resistant and then obviously you know stis that are becoming resistant in terms of uh so you're saying the chlamydia and the gonorrhea which i mean but so far I've read stories about those popping up and it's like basically that happens and then if like you do get one of the ones that's resistant, they just have to like, what, hook you up to like an IV in the hospital for like a week or something and really like go at your ass with some hardcore ones or something? So for now, yes, but there there are strains of gonorrhea out there and fortunately they're still pretty rare, but, but there are strains out there that are resistant to all of the antibiotics that we have. And then you're just living with gonorrhea? And that, th- well, we, we try things, then we're sort of off the map, right? Then we're trying combinations of things. We're trying other antibiotics that maybe have more side effects. But is that person forever living with, uh, you know, 
copies of random floaters of gonorrhea and chlamydia and they're like pp tracks or their vag tracks not necessarily like it just it basically means that things are much harder to treat because how contagious is gonorrhea and chlamydia you know i mean because i've definitely have had exes who claim to get it from immaculate conception <laughs> i've had people that have you know i you know sometimes people think that you can is it as easy as touching pp holes is what if you're at the gym you can't get it from touching something in like the at the gym and then touching your pp can't i mean how easy no. is it to get it is not easy to get like that it is easy to get in the setting of unprotected sex with someone who has oral gonorrhea vaginal or yes, yes, yes yeah yeah any all of them of, all of them all of the above yes but if you're but well rubbing pp holes is probably kind of contagy sure I mean, that's not, I guess it doesn't feel that good for anyone. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so yeah. So that's, if you're diddling in the mouth or in the butt or in the vagina or in the pee hole, that's like a good way to get it. Yes. But you're not getting it from like touching towels, you know, at the gym, unless you're talking about like craps. Nope. Right. So, oh, oh wow. Interesting. Time for a break. Saved by the bell. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Dr. Adam Ratner uh, with a really incredibly long, gorgeous title. Uh, you, but you, you know, you work with NYU. You were, you know, so, but you work with kids in pediatrics. Uh -huh. But when you became a doctor, you probably had to study all the germs and stuff. Yes. And all the people. Oh, my God. I just had, like, a daydream about how this person who's in med school was just telling me about, like, their cadaver. I can't believe that, like, you guys have to do that. It's so intense. I'm not a doctor. Blood grosses me out. You know, I can deal with it in, like, a human way. I think, like, in an emergency I could deal with something. But, like, ugh. You know? Understood. What about um, mad cow disease and that deer disease that's going around? That You know, that zombie deer wasting disease mm -hmm. that's, like, in 33 states or whatever? How easy is it for, like, you know, an Armageddon-like jump species bacteria probability like, could that happen? So mad cow and other diseases like that are super interesting because they they are um, transmitted prions. They're these, these misfolded proteins that can be infectious. And they're not bacteria and they're not viruses. It's sort of this, this new and, and really interesting way that infections can, can transmit. Um, the whole idea of things going from one species to another is, is really interesting because we have, we have some infections that are really human specific like like you think about measles for example that that is something that um that pretty much only like we don't see animals get. getting like these random rashes and right. coughs exactly. and like yeah but but if you think about something like rabies that's something that lots of different animal species SARS was get. like that wasn't cuz didn't it come from like camels and and so, so there's MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory yeah. Syndrome. So, so that that is associated with camel exposure, and that's something that um, that camels can have and can get sick from, and and can transmit to humans. And so, go ahead. Well, wasn't HIV originally like in? I mean, isn't didn't people? I mean, I, we had um, uh, my friend and amazing former client who is an incredible surgeon and worked for the LGBTQ center at the time when she was a guest on the show. I there, but I think that, you know, 
they have said that the idea of like patient zero was like debunked because really like in the the family tree of like HIV it was going on like far before him and like in mm-hmm. decades prior and like places in like Serbia and places in like Africa and like the, it's it had been around for like longer, but isn't there thought that it originally did jump from like a, a a virus that is similar to HIV in primates? Absolutely, yeah. So they're they're. The current understanding of of where HIV came from, as, as far as I understand it, is that there were multiple sp- what are called spillover events like that. There were there were multiple instances of transmission of a virus that was like HIV and like SIV, this simian immunodeficiency virus, that probably due to blood to blood contact, you know, between humans and and an infected primate, jumped over was you know, just well enough adapted to the primate to survive in the human. I mean, these these pathogens— But wouldn't that, that have been from a prion? But that wasn't from a prion? That was Because it was a virus in the simian or like right. MERS was a virus in the camel. So that's— Right, so so those are all viruses. So so the, the prion diseases are something very different. Um, so so like the so a mad cow disease or this wasting deer disease are prion ones which were right. not viruses in the first place. Right. They are a protein that folds weird. That, exactly. Mm. Which is really weird to think about and was was a theory that uh that took a long time to be accepted and I I think is still you know something that that people don't understand as well as we you know it's not as intuitive as as thinking about a virus or a bacterium or something like that. Can is there any funguses that can kill us? Yeah. So I worry about that a lot because you know as I was saying before we we work a lot with immunocompromised kids and in particular you know kids who have had chemotherapy or have have you know genetic diseases where their immune system doesn't work well are very susceptible to fungi that are just in the environment that they, they, you and I and everyone come into contact with every day, but our immune system is really good at containing them, at, at keeping the, you know, if you breathe them in and the immune system keeps them in the the outside part of the lung and, and make sure they don't get into the blood. And in kids who, you know, have altered immune systems, either transplants or, or chemotherapy or something like that, are at much higher risk for those. The problem with that is, number one, that they, they can be lethal. Number two, that our, our armamentarium of antifungal drugs is really limited compared to what we have for antibiotics. Um, and so when we have fungi that develop resistance to those antifungal drugs, we have a major problem. So earlier this year and, and maybe even going into last year, there was all sorts of news coverage of Candida auris, which was this. The ceilings. Very, yeah. So the, this very resistant um, fungus that was causing infections in a, a whole bunch of states, New York included. And it tended to be in hospitalized and, and immunocompromised patients, but it's something we worry about a lot and that was like in 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 ceilings right is that like a, it's like sport it's so it, it was environmental you can get stuff in ceiling there are there are fungal spores that can can live in ceilings and that can be a, a mechanism for transmission too because they really had to like clean the shit out of these places yep could residences have this in them in them like yeah i mean i i think that candida auris itself is not that what the widespread. fuck is this no. candida auris it it's a it's a kind of fungus. It's related to the sort of normal kind of candida, like the candida that people sometimes Is that get. yeast? Yeah, exactly. 
So, so Candida auris is a relative of sort of that normal kind of yeast. And the they kind of thing that something like, They, yes. They like, well, they, that's how they reproduce. Yeah. They just Yep, they, they sort of bud off. Yeah. yeah. Like they don't have to like have sex. Correct. Um, and, and, ah, uh, and is that how they make you sick? Because if they get into you, they just keep creating and then, like, is that what happens? Yeah. So, so the, the deal is that often you come into contact with these things just through the air or, or, you know, through contact with them and they can reproduce. But at the same time, your immune system is really good at being on the lookout for bacteria, viruses, you know, fungi, and it your immune system can keep these things at bay. When we alter that equation, when we put people on immunosuppressive drugs or give them chemo or something, we give th- some of those microbes some opportunistic infections an advantage. And Candida auris, like a lot of you know, other fungi or other bacteria, can then get to places where it's not supposed to be. Are there ever funguses that become um, contagious? Like if you get a fungus from like the ceiling spore, but then can you give it to someone else? Like if you get a cough or something? That's a really interesting question. So in general, no, but there's, you know, there there are specific things that you worry about with this. So in the Southwest United States, there's a, a fungus called coccidioidomycosis, which is, it's valley fever. It's this thing that that, that people get in the, in the uh, San Joaquin Valley and, and other places in the Southwest. And you get it by inhaling dust in the air. And it's usually not contagious person to person. People get it through sort of common environmental exposures. But sometimes within the hospital setting, you can get transmission from person to person, either from people aerosolizing it from from bandages, or that's one of a few infections where we worry about the people in the microbiology lab at the hospital. We sort of warn them if we think that we have a patient with that because it's the kind of thing that can be transmitted in the microbiology lab. Oh, scare. I know, right? Um, I feel like my brain wondered because I like am so uh, scared about microbes and viruses and bacteria. So what about that antibiotic thing that lives in like the tubes that people get shoved down their throats? The antibiotic. Thing. And like hospitals. Cause remember how like there was like that one like CBRE or whatever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so you can, so these, these are things that we worry about. So it's, you know, the, the reason that we try to get people out of the hospital as fast as possible, like you were talking about before, is that despite our best efforts, like the hospital can be a place where things get transmitted from one person to another. And, you know, we do, you know, we use things like endoscopes and bronchoscopes and stuff like that to do important procedures on people. But we have to be really careful about disinfecting. Do things. we just need to make them disposable? So some, Are they too expensive? Some things you can and some things you can't. And so we – what we – usually do for for scopes like that is that there are sheaths that are disposable but that the um the scope itself I don't isn't. know if I want a scope that was shoved in someone else's bronchial tubes numerous times shoved into mine I understand feels gross so things like that get cleaned really really well they get sterilized um but when there is a breakdown in protocol like that, which is, you know, what happened with the with the antibiotic-resistant organisms that you're talking about, you can get patient-to-patient transmission of things. And we have, it's why we have really good people in our infection control department who make sure that people are you know, doing what they should do to prevent infection as much as we can. Um, okay, really quick sidebar. 
Do you remember a couple months ago when like that guy like hacked up one of his fucking bronchial tubes and it like went viral because like it, it he oh, like yes, but then like didn't <laughs> they say that crazy. that like wasn't true or something? Or like oh, the, that I don't know. I saw I the remember, pictures. Of it's it. like uh, that was crazy. Do you guys remember that? Everyone's like reacting. Do you it was so crazy. Like it was like a big old red purple fucking bronchial tube. Uh, okay, and I'm gonna write that down later. Okay, uh, okay. Question: Are you scared about like say like an Ebola or um, like could something become like airborne that hasn't classically been? So. Yes, but I worry less about for so for people who are right here, I worry less about Ebola than I do about things like influenza. That's what I mean. Like well, I guess I, Ebola just jumped out at me, but like could any disease that like isn't classic like just like have a mutation and become like like a swine flu or like an avian flu that just becomes like really easily contagious from like well, I guess the flu already is easily contagious. Yeah, that, and that's the thing about the flu. So one of the things we worry about uh, with the flu is that a strain of flu that hasn't circulated in the population very much will become very contagious within humans. So that that's what people talk about when they're talking about like the bird flu strains. Like there are lots of strains of flu that mostly infect birds or mostly infect swine, and that's part of the the you know evolutionary cycle of of influenza. But for the most part, there's host restriction, meaning meaning that the bird flu strains stay in birds and, and are less fit when they make it into a human host. But if that's not true, if there's recombination between strains, if you end up with a bird flu strain that is very fit within humans, that's something you worry about because that's something to which people in general won't have immunity. Is that how the great flu of Downton Abbey of 1918 <laughs> happened? So, yeah, so so what happened with that is that every year flu changes a little bit. There, There is this sort of slow antigenic drift of flu, meaning that the, the proteins on its outside change slowly from year to year, which is the reason that you have to get a new flu shot every year. Mm. You, do you get your flu shot? I do. Good man. Thank you. Um, so – you you get your flu shot every year because there's this antigenic drift. Um, but every once in a while, and fortunately it's not that common, you can get this antigenic shift, which means it's a big change in those proteins on the outside. And um, that can cause a pandemic of flu. And that's that's what happened in 1918. And that's something that's happened a, a couple of times since then. Uh, right. And then – but is our ability to fight the flu or other viruses like it has that changed? Like, is like was a tam because like had Tamiflu been available in 1918? Would that have helped save anyone? Like, do, or do we know that the like staying hydrated is more important now than we did then? Like, so so the good news is we definitely have access to better supportive care now than we did then. And one of the major reasons that people who get influenza die is that they they die of bacterial superinfection, meaning you get the flu, it lowers your defenses, you get bacterial pneumonia, and the bacterial pneumonia kills you. Mm. Flu can kill you on its own also. Uh, but even with everything we have, even with flu shots and with the availability of oseltamivir, which is Tamiflu and, and other antiviral drugs, Flu still kills tons of people every year in the United States. And, and when you say tons, like thousands, tons, hundreds. like millions. Millions, like millions a year? Like, like thousands. thousands. Many, many thousands. 
But pro- like people that have like suppressed immune systems, younger like babies, old people. So people. so young young people, very young people, and very old people are at the highest risk, right? So and suppressed so immune system is, people, like a yep, cancer. Yep, yep, yep. But one of the things about flu is that it can kill. People in you know people Young, in their twenties, yeah, right. exactly. And I just like fucking that, like that poor, that really cute redheaded girl in Downton Abbey. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was really upsetting. I can't even handle it. Okay, we're running out of time, and we have more things to talk about. Okay, so there we need more antiviral treatments, basically. And like, there isn't like any like really new kid on the block that's super major. Is anyone working on that? Yes, but people need to get their flu shots. That is the the most important thing that people can do to to prevent the flu is get your flu shot. Because even if you still get the flu, you might not get it so bad. Yep, exactly. That, and it that, helps keep the it, does it help keep the anti flu or does it help keep the flu shot more current? Like the more people get it or something, like does that help? No, but but the first thing that you said I think is is really insightful. So a lot of, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm I'm not going to get the flu shot because I read on in the news that it was only thirty you percent know, effective last year or something like that. And so the first response to that is a thirty percent is way more than zero percent, which is what it is if you don't get the flu shot, and then. The second thing is, even if it's only 30% quote-unquote effective, that means it's 30% effective at preventing all cases of flu. It's much better in terms of preventing serious cases of flu. So it it decreases your rate of hospitalization or of dying much more than that 30%. And you would probably hear those horror stories that we hear of people having the flu vaccine and having something happen to them if – like we would hear more of that if less – if people – got less flu shots. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure the people that get the 30% protection, like, that is doing something. Like, 30% is better than nothing. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay, so we are running out of time, but uh, I have two more things that I want to cover, but we're going to do it like rapid fire. I'm ready. Okay. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2017, Donald Trump directed the CDC that they couldn't use, like, those seven words, like, transgender. Um, There was, like, seven words that you couldn't use, like, transgender, uh, science-based. Can you pull them up for me really quickly? Um, But... I mean, how is the climate of this administration and in general, have you seen any difference in how we're researching things in the culture of science in the age of Trump? Are you seeing those have any sort of coexistence? This is a major, major issue. Um, I'll, I'll touch on two things with that, if that's okay. So, so the first is there has been the the first rumblings of what i think is going to be a broad ban on fetal tissue research you know one of the things that i i am most alarmed about is that i i think that under the policies of this administration we're we're seeing the beginnings of what is going to be a a broad based ban on the use of fetal tissue in research and so already nih scientists are being prohibited from getting fetal tissue for research. And uh, even other scientists that are funded by NIH are worried that there is going to be an approval process and that they are going to try to phase out uh, fetal tissue research. And this is a major, major problem and a, a barrier to progress in a wide variety of areas of research, but particularly in infectious diseases research. Um, because it wasn't like the chickenpox vaccine developed from like fetus fetal tissue. So so lots of vaccines are made in cells that were originally from either amniotic membranes or or placental cells. These are 
essentially immortal cells that have been passaged since the 1960s. It's not like there is ongoing use of of new fetal tissue for those. Okay, that's important to to explain. Explain that because I don't say that again for people that aren't doctors. Sure, absolutely. So so people, you know, a lot of the anti-vaccine tropes that are are out there on the internet seem to imply that there is ongoing use of fetal tissue for production of vaccines, which is false. There are vaccines that are made in cell lines that originated from fetal tissue or from from amniotic membranes. Um, but those cell lines are are propagated and are are used and do not require the use of new fetal tissue. Uh, for for them to produce vaccines now, so so that those were fetuses that existed long long ago and not new fetuses, and then the second thing though is that people use. But so then, why is ahead. it a barrier for? Why is it a barrier for developing? Because can't we just use those old like fetal tissues, like membranes, to test things? So so you can use certain cell lines like that, but but we need the ability to use new fetal tissues, new fetal cells to um, to create organoids, which are are these sort of in vitro, you know simulations of of organs to understand the physiology of of the placenta one of the things that i work on is how infections happen in pregnant women and how things get transmitted to the fetus and that's that's research that's impossible to do without fetal tissue oh how interest Thank yeah you. you can't so that's what you study okay so now we literally have like 1 minute left so like okay. what can people do if they want to learn more about you <laughs> Since we didn't talk about that very much in this podcast. Are you on Twitter or something? I am. So I am on Twitter at, at Gramstain, G-R-A-M-S-T-A-I-N, um, and on Instagram, but not that active on Instagram. At, but you are on Twitter? Ratner A, yep. Okay, and we'll start using your Instagram more actively to talk about medical things that you're passionate about. Like I will Instagram can be really multifaceted, you know? Okay. Um, and then I was just really going to ask, um, just like oversight. Like who is responsible for oversight of like cleaning the, the tubes of the thing? Like of like if you get a if you get a procedure and you get like is there what is medical oversight or is that a different podcast it's probably a different episode isn't it so we- you know, all hospitals, I, I think ours in particular is very good at this, have have teams of people that, that not only do those things, but but that oversee all of that and make sure that the instruments that you are, you know, that, that people are using are, are cleaned properly. Is there a governing are, body for all the hospitals? Because what about like for your county hospitals or your hospitals that would service, say, like a detention center or like a private prison or something like is there a governing body that governs like all so so there are standards that that cut across all hospitals but what but what you just brought up actually takes me back to your question about trump can i say one more yes. thing um which is that you know the the conditions in the the essentially the concentration camps on our our southern border especially for children are appalling and you know one of the one of the things that we're seeing are children showing up to local hospitals having been not diagnosed having been misdiagnosed with infections there have been several children who've died in in that way and so oversight of of those and and medical access in those areas is particularly important because that is a that is a an administration created public health emergency Dr. Reiner, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. This is great. Um, You're incredible. And I want to hit on that on our Instagram video that we make outside. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And let's let's go make some content. Yay. 
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Adam Ratner. You'll find links to Dr. Ratner and NYU Langone Health Socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you to her for letting us use it. If you've enjoyed our show, introduce a friend or family member, tell them how to get involved uh, and take a listen. We love it. Show them how to subscribe. Getting Curious is produced by Emily Bosick, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Harry Nelson, and Colin Anderson. 